Well, last week I preached at Five Points Community Church in Auburn Hills. Nick, wherever you are, thank you for preaching an awesome message here last week. Listen to it actually on the way home because the AV crew put it up so quickly. Thank you so much for that. As I was getting ready to preach during the uh, song set before the sermon, one of the musicians read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And I, saw, I found those verses so compelling, so gripping, so powerful, I literally had a hard time thinking of my sermon I was about to preach. And the reason I think I had such a goosebump bumps moment under the reading of those verses is because these verses put on irrefutable, unmistakable blast, the absolute supremacy of Christ. In fact, that's the word in verse 18, that in all things he might be preeminent. The NIV translates it as other translations do, that in all things he might be supreme. Well, I had something on the docket for this week in our revival series, The Fear of God. I spent a couple days writing that message, but I just couldn't get away from this passage. And I was talking with my wife, Susan, and she said, I just think you need to go with Colossians 1. So if it's a bad sermon, you know who to blame it on, okay? But here we are, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. It always helps to get the context a bit. So what's happening is... Paul had never been to the church at Colossae, though he was instrumental in its planting. Epaphras lets him know that this fledgling young church is being threatened by bad teachers teaching some bad things about Jesus. But they were doing so in a very sly way. The dangerous rub of it all was this. They were not directly attacking Jesus frontally. Rather, their attack was more like a double envelopment. They were putting something alongside Jesus. It was a Jesus plus kind of thing. Jesus is great, yeah, for sure, but you also need to have this experience to be complete in him. Or you also need to have this special higher knowledge available to an elite few. H.B. Charles said in his sermon on this text, the teachers promoted a prominent Jesus, but not a preeminent Jesus. I would put it this way. They said Jesus was supreme, rather special, but they did not preach him as supreme. And what that did, if you know the story at the Church of Colossae, it paved the way for a strange mix of legalism, and paganism and mysticism to just run roughshod over again this fledgling church. I don't have time to unpack that, but the bottom line was this. It was damaging and distorting their view about God, hence he wrote this letter. It was damaging and distorting their view about the gospel. That's why he says at the end of this little pericope, verse 23, don't move away from the gospel. And... Our theology vertically always impacts us horizontally. It was worse yet, or just as bad, as an outflow of that, I should say, it was impacting their view of each other. They were grouping the church into different parts. That's why Paul writes, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, here then, there's no difference, Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, Christ is in all. 
That's pretty relevant. Now, I want to make sure that we don't relegate this Colossian heresy of Jesus plus adding to Jesus and therefore losing Jesus to something of the historical past. You ever heard of Lou Giglio? I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, but he, he started something called the Passion Conferences. Great sermons often, great worship music. He said this, that threat to the early church is a threat to us to today. Be careful, he said, someone does not come in and threaten your pure faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I guarantee you it is happening all around you even right now. And he said that in 2018. Our views of God and the gospel and our brothers and sisters in Christ are presently being challenged. Now, Giglio goes on to say that the, chief, the teachers, if you read between the lines and kind of get the context, were basically saying, now listen, they're very patronizing. They would say basically, hey, the 95% of you, you are never going to get beyond it. You're, just, you're going to be stuck at Christianity 101. But if you want to be a part of the elite 5%, then you need to, you need to, uh, to embrace this higher experience we're offering you or this higher mysterious knowledge that we're offering you if you want to be part of the elite group. And I just submit to you the same thing is happening today. Now, I'm going to give you two examples before we dive into the text, and I do so with a bit of fear and trepidation because the examples I give I hope doesn't cause you to jump off rails. But I, to make the text, uh, to see why it's applicable today, we need to see the kind of dangers, right, that are consistent of yesterday that are happening today. So here are two. One in the area of pneumatology. What is pneumatology? Why the fancy word? Simply the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And there are people who would say, okay, you're preaching for revival, you're praying for revival, you guys want revival, and we do, right? What you need to preach is this, is what people need is a definitive baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, stay with me. We overwhelmingly need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and though I don't use the expression baptism of the Spirit, I use a different expression. I'm going to preach on that. We should seek that kind of thing. I'm not saying throw that out. But what people, but, the, but if someone were to say, hey, this is what you need to do. You need to line people up up front and do something to them formulaically. Tell them that they're now baptized in the Spirit and make sure they speak in tongues and boom, you're going to have a revival. Listen, that, that just, that's just not biblical. Because the Spirit is sovereign. Now, he might do something like that. Hold on. We're going to get to this series, the part on the Holy Spirit in a few weeks, and we're going to stay on it, maybe for a month. We'll see. But people say what you need to have. You ever heard slain in the Spirit? Now, as far as I can see in Scripture, the only two people that were slain in the Spirit in, 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 in the Bible, they had funerals for them, Ananias and Sapphira. So I'm not sure we want that. But now be careful, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But what I'm saying is people, and what happens in churches like that, we had somebody leave because, you know, uh, this isn't spirit-filled. Well, listen, so you have, in, in, under this kind of higher knowledge where it competes with Christ, you have two gradations of people. You have spirit-filled Christians and non-spirit-filled Christians. You ever heard that? The Bible actually tells us every Christian have this, has a spirit or otherwise you ain't a Christian. 
Now, we can experience more of him, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. Now, if that was maybe a little bit edgy, this next one probably will be too, but again, I'm trying to show why we need this text. In the area of justice, sometimes people will say what we need to embrace is some tenets of critical race theory, and usually it's more the non-technical pop culture kind of forms of that. Now, hear me again. Unquestionably, I would say this. We must learn from history, right? And unquestionably, sin impacts us on individual levels and societal levels. And unquestionably, we can learn from lots of field, even lost people in various fields, psychology, uh, sociology, all of that. So I'm not, I'm not saying that. But we have to be careful about embracing a worldview that very simplistically whittles down people into two main categories, oppressed and oppressors. And then within the oppressed class, all these other more gradations. And then it boils it down to people who get it as woke and people who don't get it as unwoke. It was the very kind of thing that was impacting that church. See, anytime you add anything to Jesus, you lose his functional supremacy and things go haywire. Colossians 2 verse 23 tells us what happens when we add to Jesus. This is what Paul says under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, these things have an appearance of wisdom. Oh, that seems so wise. Oh, that seems so compassionate. Oh, that seems like the answer. These things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Do you think that the Colossian heresy of yesterday could be a danger for us today? Of adding to Jesus and therefore losing the power of Jesus? So Paul right here, this is so beautiful, using such um, lofty and poetic language in these verses. You heard Pastor Cleet read them. Powerful language. So powerful, some commentators surmise that he actually, by inspiration of the Spirit, grabbed that text from an ancient worship song. But I like what H.P. Jarl said. Whether or not it was derived from ancient worship, it definitely should result in contemporary worship. When we see what this says about Jesus... This passage is packed with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to find is some of the most audacious, daring claims ever made about the Son of God in this passage. So I want to preach to you with a little bit longer of an introduction on the supremacy of Christ. And I want to show you something. You won't be able to read it. But this is what I do when I prepare a sermon. This is like first phase. I print out the text and I highlight words that are repeated and, and all that. And what I found I, myself highlighting seven times is the word all. Seven times it says something about Jesus being all this, all that, and he is. Four times it says he is, he is, he is, he is. And then all through it it says, from him and through him and to him, again and again and again. This passage is pregnant with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see his supremacy number one over creation and then number two in redemption. Over creation and in redemption. 
And since I've had such a long introduction, why not let it go on a minute or two? So, because somebody might be saying, well, I, I thought we were doing a series on revival. What does it have to do with revival? Everything. Because in revival, this may be the heart of it. In revival, the supremacy of Christ is rediscovered. In fact, if there will be revival, the supremacy of Christ must be rediscovered. And Jesus taught John 14 through 16, the whole span of Scripture teaches that where the Son of God is lifted up, the Spirit of God will be poured out. So I believe as we lift up the Son of God, the Spirit of God will be poured out. I'm holding glasses right here, cheaters. But I actually had laser vision, so uh, laser vision correction. So for a while, I couldn't see stuff long, far away. I was playing, like, my senior, I think it was when I was in college playing baseball, I couldn't see that well at night. And so they said, you need to go to the ophthalmologist and get yourself some glasses. And when I put those glasses on, I was like, oh, my goodness, those aren't green blobs. They actually have leaves on those things. Like, I didn't have any definition. And I'm telling you, we are losing definition over Jesus. We need to see him vividly, HDMI. Need to see his supremacy. And maybe you walked in here and you've never seen him as just some kind of religious figure from the past. May God do laser vision on you through his word and allow you to see the Son of God burying your sins on the cross and rising again in victory. So number one, the supremacy of Christ. Done with introduction, okay? Over all creation, verses 15 through 17. We're just going to simply walk the text. Verse 15, it says this. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image is the word icon. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. No man has ever seen the Father fully, right? You say, what about those Old Testament theophanies? They were theophanies. They were manifestations. But no one has ever seen God the Father in his essential nature. It would fry you. And that's why it says in John chapter 1, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, another translation, the only begotten God who's in the bosom or the side of the Father, he has made him known. Jesus, Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is fully God. You've heard me say this, but he is not a junior varsity God. He's not a cult God. He's not a Jehovah's Witness God. He is true God of true God, as the old confession puts it. One time his apostles asked him, asked him show us the Father. You remember that in John 14? And what does he say? You've been with me this long and you, you, you haven't seen? He who has seen, the, seen me, he says, has seen the Father. So what we need to know is Jesus was not just sent from God, and he was in the mystery of the Trinity. He is in the mystery of the Trinity also God himself. He's the image of the invisible God. It goes on to say then, the latter part of verse 15 the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. That's kind of an odd statement, isn't it? Sometimes the cults like to wreak havoc with that. They say, ha, gotcha. Jesus was the firstborn of the creation. Therefore, yes, he's great. He's 
He's super, but not supreme. He's prominent, but not preeminent. He was the first one created. He's the firstborn of creation. That's, that's kind of the logic. They are so off. First of all, if you were to take that statement that way, which is not the meaning, who would be the firstborn of all creation? Adam. Exactly. It would be Adam. The word firstborn does not communicate chronological order, but rank in honor, dignity, and authority. For instance, was David the firstborn of his family? No, you remember he goes to the Goliath showdown, right? And he's like, big brothers, why don't you do anything? And he steps in the mix. Was he the first Israelite king ever? No. But God says about him in Psalm 89, verse 27, the Old Testament version in, in Greek, in the Septuagint, he says, I will make you, the same word, the protokos, the firstborn, the highest of kings of the earth. Again, it doesn't refer to chronological order, but to rank and authority. Jesus has absolute rank and authority over creation because guess what? He is the creator. Now, I don't know if that does anything for you. But that does something to me. Jesus Christ is the creator of everything. Verse 16 goes on to say, he's just not supreme over creation as the creator. It makes the point. It's the point we're making. He made everything. Look at verse 16. For by him, how many things were created? There's one of the first of seven alls, or second uh, all. Where, was, where were they created? In heaven and where? On earth, visible and what? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I'm not going to take time to parse those down. But the point is, Jesus made everything, everywhere, heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Jesus made it all. Jesus is supreme because he made everything. John puts it this way in his prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with, with God. All things were made by him, and without, without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is supreme because there's not one place you could ever go that wasn't made by him. From Albuquerque to Australia, he made it. From Buffalo to, give me a, uh, Brazil, he made it. From Chicago to China, he made it. Detroit to, to uh, the Dominican Republic. From Michigan to Manchuria. From St. Louis to Somalia. There's no place you could go, flip the label, and it wouldn't say, made by Jesus. He made everything. He made the, the farthest galaxy that humans can see through the latest and greatest massive telescopes and then the deep darkness of outer space beyond it into infinity. He made that. And he made the smallest particles that you can only see through a subatomic microscope. He made it all. And let's just talk about one realm of animate beings, which are terrible this year with all the rain. They say it's the worst one in a long time. Insects. Do you know how many species of insects that there are? Now, maybe Google lied to me, but this is what I got. Five point five million, I don't know how you categorize that, that's what they're telling, species of insects over three main insect families. Beetles, one, I can't remember the other two. Look at me, I can't remember. I'm not an entomologist, but I did read this. 
And then I thought, I wonder if they know how many bugs there are in the world. Just an estimate. They estimate there are 10, by the way, just 5.5 million species of insects? How can you believe that just evolved? Bam, he spoke it and all that variation happened by the word of his power. Amazing. I don't like the mosquitoes during hunting season or scouting season, but I read that if we didn't have those insects, civilization might be done with because they're so significant in, in the processes of life. But how many insects are there? Anybody want to guess? This isn't just a kid's number I'm making up. Somebody wrote 10 quin trillion insects. 1.4 billion for every inhabitant of the earth, and I think there's over 700 billion inhabitants of the earth now. Amazing, and he, he, he made it all. Now, speaking of humans, this text answers the two most fundamental existential questions Every person, if they're honest with, with themselves, does wonder about wherever you are. The two most fundamental questions people want to know is, who am I? And why am I here? This text tells us who we are. It says, again, verse 16, for by him all things were created. That all things can create you and I. And the scripture makes it clear that at the crown of his creative genius are humans. They're at the crown because we're made in the very image of God. So yes, humans are, 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 are totally depraved, meaning every part of us has been infected by sin. But don't throw out this. Every human is also inherently worthy of dignity and intrinsically valuable because we were made in the image of God. And if you'll ever know who you are, it's not going to, listen, there's many great things to learn about us, our backgrounds, our family history, our ancestry, all of that. But the most fundamental thing you need to know about yourself, if you ever know God, is you need to know that you were made in his image. You are a mago Dei, which means made in the image. And that's why the scripture says, the fool in his heart has said there is no God. You will never know who you are and know who God is if you deny the fact that he made you in his image. So that's why, that's who you are. Now, why are you here? It goes on to say, you can see these words for yourself. All things were created through him, which is slightly different than by him, but we don't have time to explore that. But ultimately, it goes on to say, and for him. You were made to have relationship with God. You were made to have a relationship with the one who created you. He wants you to know the creator in redemption. You were made to reflect his glory. That's a beautiful thing. It's an inspiring thing, and it's a true thing. And man, we, during, during the pre-service uh, prayer meeting that we have at 10 a.m., you're welcome to come on out every, every Sunday. We prayed for all, the, the, all our kids in this church, from, from, from adult kids to younger kids, and we prayed the truth of, of Psalm 139, that they have a moment where they would come to say that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then having recognized they were made by a God, in that God's image, they would come to receive the Son of God in redemption. 
All I'm trying to say from this text is Jesus is supreme as creator because he created all things, visible and invisible, everything, everywhere. Verse 17 only advances on this. It goes on to say, he is before all things. Now, you would expect that because he's creator, and the creator's always existed. And again, every time I think about this, it just blows my mind. There's never been a time when God was not. I think about that too much. I need to have a fan installed in the back of my head because this little drive is just overheating. God has the attribute of eternality. Jesus has the attribute of eternality because he's always existed. Jesus is supreme because he's creator, because he created all things, because he's eternal. But finally, under this first main point, Jesus is supreme as creator because in him all things hold together. He sustains everything. He's the invisible glue that keeps everything together. He's the reason the sun rose in the east this morning and it's going to fall in the west tonight. He's the reason there's winter, spring, summer, and fall. I'm not going to do James Taylor. Winter, spring, summer, and fall. He's the reason all of this happens. But he's not just the one who physically keeps everything together. I just want to say in Christ, Christian, he's the one that keeps you together emotionally. When you don't think you can carry anymore, bear anymore, go through anymore, in him all things hold together. Jesus is supreme because he is the creator. I read a story about a company down in South America a long time ago who, who purchased from a company in the States here up north um, a state-of-the-art massive printing press. So they signed the contract, they sent the money, and the American companies sent that a massive container down to South America where they, they put it together and they tried to get things up and running so they could use this printing press. But after they put it together, um, they put their best people on it and they just could not get that printing press to work. So they wired the company up north in the States and said, hey, can you send somebody to help us? It's, it's assembled, we assembled it right, but it won't print. So the company up north sends somebody down, and when the guy shows up, they're like, no, he's too young to know how to fix this massive thing. He's so green. He's, he's green behind the ears and all, wet behind the ears and all that, mixing metaphors, right? And they wired back and said, this guy looks so young and inexperienced, he can't possibly fix this problem. And they said, he is the designer. If he made it, he can fix it. Don't reject Jesus because you think he's a little wet behind the ears, because you think Christianity is so intolerant. Christianity is not intolerant. Christianity, Jesus holds his arms wide and says, whosoever will. And he is, he, God is God and Jesus is God whether we believe it or not. Why don't you come to, to dive in the scriptures and see what he said about himself? I've heard people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. I don't know where you're reading. Because Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. He's a designer. And if your life is broken and if it needs some fixing, you better go back to the designer. Jesus Christ, number one, is supreme because he's creator. Number two, Jesus Christ is supreme in redemption. Now, this is going to be verses 18 through 23. Verse 18 says, he is the head of the church, 
the body, the head of the church. Last week, Nick made the very visceral point that a human body can survive with uh, a limb being amputated, right? Uh, people have survived with all four limbs being amputated. But he said he would be hard-pressed to find a human body that would survive with its head being amputated. You remember when he said that? Ichabod Crane, notwithstanding, it doesn't happen, right? Jesus Christ cannot be decapitated. He's the head of the body. Therefore, the church cannot be defeated. And that's why he said in Matthew 6, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You say, well, how do you know you can, he can't be decapitated? Read on. It says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Once again, cults like to say, ah, firstborn. But it doesn't mean chronological order. It means rank of authority. Because there were people resurrected from the dead before Jesus, right? Remember Elisha? Elijah, you, perhaps we, we would look at them now as resuscitations because they died again and then they have a future resurrection coming. But Jesus uh, resurrected Lazarus, remember that? So there was le- resurrections chronologically before Jesus, but he's the firstborn from the dead because he is the one who's going to make every resurrection possible through his own. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, John sees Jesus, falls at his feet as dead, but Jesus lays his right hand on him saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus Christ is supreme because he's exalted in glory right now as the head of the church. He is the head of the church. And it goes on to say that in all things he might have what? The preeminence, that he might be supreme. Now, this passage on Jesus' supremacy in redemption takes us from the heavenlies to the holidays and finally to the human heart. And that's where we're going to end. We just saw he's the head of the church, right? That's, That's the heavenlies. He's exalted right now. He's ruling right now. He's reigning right now. But if you are taking notes or you write in the margins of your Bible, verses 19 and 20 takes us from the deep cosmos above to the depths of the earth below, to the crust of the earth, to where we live, the grid of the earth. You can write next to verse 19, Christmas, and you can write next to verse 20, Good Friday and Easter. Christmas, verse 19, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Ezekiel 44, verse 4. Ezekiel is in the temple. The glory of God fills that temple. And what does Ezekiel do? He falls on his face and he worships. In the Old Testament, occasionally and only partially... And almost as a kind of theophany, the glory of God would fill the people of God's temple in the Old Testament. But then Jesus Christ came along. And in Jesus Christ, the glory of God fully and final and forever is inside of him in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, so that in John 1.14, they would say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. 
The glory is of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you ever seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ? He is filled with God. He is God. That's why it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, hold this out because I don't have my glasses. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So verse 19 tells us about what holiday? Christmas, the incarnation. But verse 20 tells us about Good Friday and Easter. Verse 20, it, it says this. And through him to reconcile all things whether on, to himself, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, have you ever heard of Christian universalism? There are some people who falsely teach that there is no separation from God, there is no future judgment for those outside of Christ, that all roads lead to heaven, that everyone is going to be with God forever. And they take this, they cherry pick this verse out of isolation because it says, hey, listen, he's going he's gonna to reconcile all things. But here's the thing. The Bible flat out doesn't teach that. This epistle doesn't teach that in other places. The span of Scripture doesn't teach that. And Jesus Christ himself taught the reality of a future judgment in heaven and hell. Now, certainly it does mean that for those who are in Christ, you have reconciliation in the fullest sense. You have redemption. So then what does it mean for everyone else? Well, let me explain. What this passage is telling us is that one day, unrepentant sinners, demonic powers, fallen angels, a world that's groaning under the weight of sin, one day everything's going to be put back in right order. Everything will be put back in right order. Does not the scripture tell us that creation itself, it personifies creation in Romans 8, and it says that all creation, right, is groaning together in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the adoption of sons. And the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus Christ will rule until he has put all enemies under his feet. Rulers, authorities, and powers. Then comes the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. And all of that was made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the blood of his cross. That's why we as Christians make so much about the cross. That's why we have a cross over there. That's why we sing about the cross. That's why we celebrate the cross. That's why people wear crosses. Why? Because the cross is where the Son of God won the victory that's going to bring that shalom he's talking about here, peace to people personally in Christ, to the world globally, and to the cosmos universally. Amen. That's the heavenlies. He's the head of the church. This is the holidays. He came to win the victory in his birth death and resurrection, but finally, he wants us to, he wants to take this home to our hearts. He says in verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He says, and you. Do you know what you find in verse 23 is the biography of every Christian pre-Christ? That's it right there. You're hostile. You're alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. Now listen, let's, let's just be honest with each other. You, you, you could have cloned yourself up and you did. 
You could have dressed yourself up. You could have religioned yourself up. But you put pic, uh, lipstick and a ribbon on a pig. What do you still have at the end of the day? You still got a pig. That is who we were. And if you are not a Christian, that is who you still are. Again, you can put cologne on it, you can put religion on it, you can perfume it up, you can dress it up, you can put lipstick on it, but that's who we are in our hearts. And, 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 and believing, friends, is that not the hardest thing to communicate to people in evangelism? Like, we can talk about the goodness of God in Christ, the good news, but isn't it hard to talk about the bad news? That makes somebody see their need for the good news. And if you don't give people the good, bad news with the good news, then they just added Jesus to whatever they had going. They, they kept on worshiping other gods. They just added Jesus to the charm bracelet. But biblical evangelism includes the bad news that then prepares the heart to receive the good news. It's tough. And it's offensive. And we don't want to be offensive. And if you are out here and not a Christian, and I just said, you're hostile and alienated from God, doing evil deeds. That was all of us outside of Christ. Even as Christians, we fight that mindset, but that's not us anymore. George Whitfield was an early uh, evangelist like 300 years ago, and he, he ministered to a wide group of people. There was a very wealthy lady named, the, uh, what was her name? The Countess of, um, the Lady Huntington was her name. And she came to Christ through his ministry. And a true Christian then cares about the spiritual state of other people, right? This wealthy woman cared about her wealthy friends. So she invited a friend, the Duchess of Buckingham was her name, to come to hear Whitfield speak. And after Whitfield spoke, Huntington asked her, well, what did you think? And she said, and I quote this woman who is yet outside Christ, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common people that crawl on earth. Hmm. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any such sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. It was offensive to her. I don't know how it is with you. Paul's threefold declaration of being alienated, hostile, and doing evil needs, that is strong stuff. I will admit that. But I believe if you would be honest with yourself and just get in a traffic jam, you would agree. I believe that you took a real unedited, unairbrushed, unpr'd look and review your own life. You would say, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I've been hostile. I've been hostile against God, the true God. I've been hostile against others. Yeah, it's true. But what's so beautiful here is how the supremacy of Christ and redemption is seen in what God does for those who recognize that and turn to Christ. He says he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus is so supreme that he can take an alienated hostile heart doing evil things and present such a person, again, the text says, as blameless, holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, I have to tell you, after a tough day in which you really shanked it, in which you were not all that you ought to have been, this is extremely encouraging truth that every sin one could ever commit 
if you're in Christ, have all been reconciled by the blood of his son. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're just as forgiven on a bad day as a good day? That when you just went off the rails as when you did right? Do you believe that? Because if you don't believe the gospel believers, what will happen is as you sin, you'll turn farther away from God. You'll get back to works religion. Now you got to work your way back into his favor. The only thing that you did to get himself in your favor is nothing. It will accept sin. And he said, I want you to come to me anyway. And I, he put his sin on your son, the body of his flesh through death. So if you're, if you're running from God because you're not doing right, yes, Turn from that sin, but turn to Christ. Don't turn from that sin and run farther away from God because all you can do is turn more into sin. It's the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness. Holy and blameless in his sight. The section ends with an if. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not moving from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, that almost reads like a threat, doesn't it? If. And Paul can give a threat or two. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to that church that was wilding out, examine yourself whether you be of the faith. But the Greek construction here, the weight of this particular injunction, is actually not at all warning. It's much more assurance. I don't have time to unpack all that, but let me just quote from Greek scholar Peter O'Brien. He paraphrases the first part of this verse this way. At any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I am sure you will, that's the tone of it. He's trying to encourage the church at Colossae who was doing Jesus plus stuff to stop the plus stuff and realize it's the supremacy of Christ over creation and in all redemption. So if anyone comes to you selling a higher spiritual experience you need or some kind of special spiritual knowledge you have, that does not lead directly to Jesus Christ, walk away. No, run away. Do not move away, using the words of Paul here, from the hope of the gospel. If the music, music team would come. Now, as I said in the introduction, we don't know if this, song, this, this, this text was derived from an ancient worship song, but I hope we all would agree in Christ, this should lead us to worship, right? These daring, bold, audacious claims about the supremacy of Christ over creation and in redemption. Our heart should be something of Paul's heart, Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is what we're going to do. We're going to give thanks. We're going to worship him for being God, for being king, for being Lord, for being so gracious. This is what we do right now. We have an order of service 
But this ain't about an order of service. It's about the state of our hearts. I'll close with something that a preacher helped me see. The book ends in verse, in chapter 4 with 11 names mentioned. Aristarchus, uh, some other names. Some names I can't pronounce. What's the big idea about that? These are 11 no names. These aren't the big shots, the heavy hitters that we read in Scripture. They wouldn't call themselves that, but we look at the Apostle Paul, big shot, heavy hitter, right? We think of Peter. We think of all those guys. That's not who's mentioned in the closing chapter. Eleven pretty insignificant people. People like you and I. And yet the Apostle Paul used them because God used the Apostle Paul and them to advance the gospel. God wants to use you to advance the supremacy of Christ. This week, we have an opportunity to do just that. Wednesday night, we plan to eat some high-end hot and readies here at the post office at 6 o'clock. And then we're going to hit the streets, and we're going to love on our neighbors, and we're going to say hello to them, and then we're going to invite them to Kids Club into our midweek fellowship starting a few more Wednesdays down the road. And I just want to invite you to commit to that. Let's not do a Sunday-only Christianity. We say, well, I, I worship God on my own. Let's not do a Sunday-only body Christianity. I want, well, there's a whiteboard right back there where I'm pointing. I want to ask you if you would commit to coming out to put your name down and roughly how many will be, be with you. It doesn't have to be exact. I just want to make sure everybody gets fed. But I, I really, really want to encourage you it's okay to be a small name. That's all we are. But those small names were used by God, right? Because they surrendered. They used to be used by God. And, 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 and I would just add this. And we're going to sing. Why don't you stand up? We're, we're going to sing, though. But let me, let me add this. This book ends with something very astounding, very astounding. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. That's just boilerplate stuff. What's, what's so big about that? Paul, when he wrote his letters, had somebody write them for him. He would dictate to them. Uh, there's a special name for Amasis. Does anybody know that name? Well, scribe, thank you. That's just cut to the chase. That's what it was, right? And probably who traveled with him, kind of like an, a helper, an attendant, a, a co-laborer in Christ. And we don't know exactly why. It might be... In some cases, because he, had, he might have had really bad eyesight, he might have had a hand condition, there's a few brush strokes that indicate that in Scripture. Or it might be, or at least partially, or at least in this case, he could not write. Because where is Paul when he wrote this? He's in prison. He's chained up when he wrote this. But he said, nope. I want to write this last sentence. People know what's from me. And he says, I write this with my own hand in my chains. He says, remember my chains. Grace be with you. What are you getting at? What I'm getting at is Paul being chained up did not chain up God from using him. 
And there's no circumstance you're going through. There's no struggle you're going through. There's no sorrow you're going through that chains God up from using you. In fact, in being used by him, he might minister grace in those places you so much want help. So whatever you're going through, you say, I'm not qualified to go hand out cards and talk to people about Jesus. The only qualification you need is your disqualification, that you need Christ. That makes you qualified. So church family, let's step out together in faith. Get outside these walls and make known the supremacy of Christ over all things. In Jesus' name, amen.